0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking with the architecture and design critic of The Guardian, Oliver Wainwright. Oliver has been writing at The Guardian since 2012 and previously wrote for publications like Building Design, The Architects Journal, and Icon. Before transitioning to journalism, he studied architecture and worked in a number of studios, including OMA. Last year, he published Inside North Korea, a book of photographs of the architecture in North Korea. In this conversation, Oliver and I talk about his interest in writing and why he left uh, architecture practice. We talk about the challenges with writing for a general audience for a newspaper like The Guardian, the role of the critic, and that sometimes tricky position of being both a critic and a practitioner. I have been reading Oliver's writing for years. I'm a big fan and was excited to finally have him on the podcast. I think you'll really enjoy this one. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I like to think of as the director's commentary for the podcast. Each month I share additional content, episode previews, and short essays related to the themes of the podcast. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Oliver Wainwright. What's interesting to me about you is that you studied architecture, you worked as an architect, and then as somebody who's been reading your work from afar made what seems like a very sudden turn into uh, journalism, criticism, writing. And Mm. I kind of want to start there actually. And I'm I'm curious about that transition. Was was it as sudden as it seems like kind of in retrospect or what was your interest? Where were you at the time when you kind of started writing? How did all this come about?
1: Yeah, and that's a very good question. And and I guess actually it was much more gradual um, <laughs> than maybe it down, seems yeah. from the outside. Um, so as you say, I, I trained uh, to be an architect. I, I did my undergraduate at the University of Cambridge. And then uh, my first kind of year out working in practice, I actually went to work for the mayor of London, mm. um, for the Greater London Authority, when Ken Livingstone was the mayor. So a fairly kind of radical left-wing mayor yeah. and they just set up a little team called the architecture and urbanism unit which was a, a small group of architects kind of working within the um the the gla kind of within the political sphere mm. and and th- i suppose that, that was the stage that really kind of triggered my interest in in the power of writing potentially beyond the power of designing because a lot of my job this is the, the kind of first job I had straight out of school was writing reports and writing kind of design reviews um, and, and quite kind of political documents that would end up, you know, trying to influence the nature of certain developments. Um, and it was fascinating, you know, get, getting this exposure to the kind of behind-the-scenes mechanisms, you know, the, the way that London was actually being yeah. shaped in the run-up to the Olympics. Um, so I think it was then that I started doing some freelance writing. Um, then I moved to Rotterdam to work at OMA um, to work yeah. on some... Competitions and things like that. And again, when I was there, I ended up drifting into AMO, which oh. is the so-called yeah. research think tank. You know, I mean, uh, from the outside, it sounds like this very kind of glamorous, um, you know, research cluster within the office. But it's basically the same thing as OMA. It's just <laughs> interns gathered around Wikipedia and in design, you know, right. desperate making books and doing research. But but it, it was the side of the office that I found fascinating because it was a much more kind of journalistic research-led process and when i was in rotterdam that's when i started actually writing for magazines so um that would have been about 2007 8 i think that i started having some articles published in things like icon magazine and the architect's journal and building design um just little things like little reviews or interviews with architects that i'd met um And I came back to London and did my masters at the Royal College of Art. And again, it was this whole process. You know, all the time I was studying architecture, I actually found much more kind of pleasure and reward in in the writing I was doing on the side. Whether it was you know writing the kind of arguments and descriptions behind my own projects or or writing other people's work, Um, yeah. So I just ended up doing more and more kind of freelance work on the side, really. and I was very lucky when I graduated in uh, 2010, um, Building Design Magazine was having a bit of a shake-up, and the guy that had been the mm. architecture critic became the editor, Ellis Woodman. Okay. And he approached me, you know, literally on my graduation day saying, uh, hey, do you want my <laughs> nice. job? Hey, do, do you want to be the full-time critic of the UK's most read architecture magazine? So. It was a bit annoying, to be honest, because I'd really I'd been planning to go into practice and, and thought, OK, I can, you know, have a practice and kind of write part time and, and do both, um, you know, which is the, the ultimate dream. And then was suddenly offered this full time job as a critic that was too good to, to turn down.
0: Yes. To, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I did. <laughs> I I have a couple of questions. I I actually find that really fascinating. I have a couple of questions about that trajectory. So you kind of finished your undergrad and you you got this job working for the mayor, and you found yourself writing a lot. What was your writing experience like at that point? Had you done any writing? Did you know you had an interest in writing or a a, a talent or a a bend? there i
1: suppose it was a very different kind of writing i mean the the reason i chose cambridge to study architecture is that of the architecture schools in in the uk it's probably the one that has the strongest kind of history and mm. theory uh side to the program so so i suppose throughout those three years of, of undergraduate study i'd written a lot of of kind of essays and kind of critical
0: okay.
1: pieces i was mainly of a of a more historic nature um and then yeah, shifting to the GLA, and you know, it was almost like having to be a kind of historian of the present, you know, which is I suppose what criticism is.
0: Right. I, I was I faced that. with
1: these yeah. um, very uninspiring planning applications for speculative apartment buildings in East London. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is the, the Olympics, the twenty twelve Olympics had just been announced. Oh, right. So, right. so a lot of developers were were there was a kind of gold rush to East London, um, producing you know these very cheap designs for high-rise speculative towers and i was having to kind of write criticism <laughs> on on the themes and then that would be fed into the the planning process
0: oh that's um, interesting
1: yeah, and it was it was like you know being dropped in at the deep end. I must have been about twenty, I guess, maybe or nineteen, and you know suddenly you, you're sitting in meetings with middle aged architects, telling them that <laughs> they could do a bit better.
0: <laughs> with yeah, <their> design.
1: yeah. <laughs> I think that's what gave me the confidence, the, the kind of insane confidence that maybe you shouldn't have at that age, but but <laughs> you're kind of forced to when you're in that kind of job. But, you know, I thought, okay, yeah, no, I do have opinions, and I I believe in these opinions, so maybe I can somehow make a living out of having well argued opinions um and yeah, yeah i mean that's what criticism yeah. is i suppose
0: when you went back to school for your masters and and you mentioned that you kind of were enjoying this more writing and and kind of research and thinking side and especially mm-hmm. at at amo and then you graduated and you thought you were going to go into practice i'm i'm kind of curious about i don't mean to for this to get too mm-hmm. Uh, like <laughs> what if yeah but what what were you kind of thinking what kind of practice were you interested in and and did, did it even yeah. did you even think about full-time writing was that even something that kind of had crossed your mind or were you kind of set on this practice no, I'd,
1: I'd never considered full-time writing to be honest um I was I was determined to be a designer okay. and, and an architect of some kind uh, and I actually I set up an office with a couple of friends while we were still studying at the RCA. Um, we, we all found ourselves drifting towards the same topic, which, again, it was the Olympic mm-hmm. site, because that was such a kind of politically contentious thing at the time in East London. You know, it was it was being seen as this kind of steamroller of fast track gentrification that was seeing the the forced displacement of, of communities and industry and and kind of fragile businesses from the the lower lee valley so we all kind of came together and and did um a project a kind of speculative project about an alternative olympic legacy mm. uh, we, we, we were called studio super niche because <laughs> all, all of the topics that we were <laughs> would somehow be quite kind of niche. Oh, man, I love that. Uh, And it was two architects, a product designer and a sculptor. And then, you know, so we did this project. We actually took it to the Rotterdam Biennale in 2009 and won the kind of student prize for the the Biennale. And we thought, yes, you know, this is our first project. We're going to go on and do great things. And then a few months later, when we graduated, we kind of disbanded because we actually realised that we all had quite different interests. Um, you know, the, the the furniture designers kind of went off and, and became you know solo designers. I ended up um, uh, going to, to building design magazine. So yeah, it kind of fizzled out. Um, yeah, that's that's what could have been if I'd have.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's so interesting. It.
1: The idea was to somehow cross over between, you know, I suppose quite a research driven model. So so that's what we were really interested in, like re- researching the forces that were were causing this kind of fast track gentrification and displacement. But then making, I suppose, you know, slightly kind of speculative propositional architectural structures that kind of embody practice, which have been very commercialist.
0: Now, you know, you were kind of interested in this practice that was very research driven and kind of looking at these these kind of external forces and how they were influencing the work itself. And then you find yourself in a job where you are basically just writing about this, right? What was that Mm -hmm. like to kind of, I imagine you were kind of taking these same themes, these same questions you had, but instead of applying Mm -hmm. them to buildings or projects, you're applying them to essays and reviews etc. Was that a big jump to you? Or did it feel like a kind of continuation of what you were thinking about? It probably should have felt
1: like a a bigger jump than it was. And I I think the problem was ultimately that I was never a very kind of comfortable designer. And so, you know, whenever I was faced with a a site or a brief, I would much rather have have kind of written uh, an analysis or a critique or, or, you know, a a piece of text (laughs) about the situation and, and kind of explaining what was already there i suppose rather than feeling that i had the confidence to to impose my own vision on on the site and so you know to be honest design was always a kind of existential struggle um, mm. whereas writing just seemed to come much more naturally and, and i think ultimately you do end up doing what what you're good at and i knew that i was a much better writer than designer you know i would have loved to be an architect but it, it was just <laughs> something that didn't kind of come naturally Yeah, um, whereas the writing, and I also, to be honest, I found the reality of of practice so different to to what you're kind of led to yeah, believe. Yeah, You know, yeah. I'm sure you found the same. You know, when you're, yeah. you're studying uh, in in school, the conversations and the kinds of ideas that you're exploring, you know, are so exciting and so fascinating. And then you you join a practice, and most of your time is spent staring at AutoCAD, <laughs> you know, 24 hours a day clicking lines and it's it's a very soul-destroying mind-numbing job i always tell people like the reality of being an architect the kind of technical information that has to be produced to make a building is just mind-boggling and and the kind of creative critical process is a fraction uh of of that time (laughs) right and and so i would always sit in meetings or or be be kind of uh, eavesdropping on meetings and wishing that i was you know having that conversation and, and could you know talk to the the kind of partners and the directors rather than being the kind of lowly intern and i suppose as a journalist that's what you do you know you you have the conversations with the people that are actually making the decisions and, and the clients and the the planners and the funders and you're kind of operating at that level rather than being a, a cog in the machine of a much bigger practice
0: you know i've talked to a bunch of architecture writers who came from practice or who studied architecture and then found themselves in roles where they're where they're writing or are architects and then are also writing at the same time. And I'm very interested in the relationships or the intersections between kind of architecture practice or architecture education and maybe maybe we don't even have to limit it to architecture. We could just say design in general and like the the training of a designer or an architect, how that feeds into or influences writing. And the writing process, and I'm curious your thoughts on going through this architecture education. How does that influence how you think about writing, or even your role as a writer? Mm,
1: that's a really good question, and and I think it's it's kind of essential. I, I think to to being a critic, it's a discipline like architecture. I think to have studied it is is. It's just a really helpful thing, but partly because it it gives you a level of of sympathy and empathy mm. with architects. I think um, yeah. it's it's incredibly difficult to make a building, let alone a good building, and it's <laughs> it's important to know, you know, just quite how hard it is and all of the obstacles yeah. that are put in the way. But I think more fundamentally. It's important to go through that to know quite how powerless the architect is, because I I would always say, and this was my pitch to the Guardian when I applied for the job, you know, about mm-hmm. seven years ago now, that actually the the architect is is such a kind of small figure in the bigger picture of urban development and when you're in practice you you really realize that you know you're at the mercy of, mm-hmm. of the clients of the funder of the planning officer you know of all these much bigger often kind of invisible forces behind the scenes that are shaping the city and shaping architecture yeah uh, and i suppose that's what i always try and focus on in my writing you know i, I think it's the critic's job to kind of unpick that system and shine mm-hmm. a spotlight on the, the kind of hidden world you know that's not just the architect in their ivory tower you know drawing the design you know that's not not how buildings get made that's a a very small element of it and it's the yeah the flows of capital yeah and the, the planning policy loopholes and all of these other things which which really have the kind of fundamental influence on on how buildings and spaces turn out
0: i recently talked to uh Renier de graf actually about uh mm. About AMO, but also about his book, Four Walls and a Roof, which in in our conversation, we kind of mm. say that basically what you just said is kind of the thesis of that book is that architects like to sometimes pitch themselves, and, and I'll throw designers in this, as these kind of future world builders. And, and they can kind of dream these things out of nowhere, when in reality, it's actually a very reactive discipline. Uh and I found his writing on that to be very refreshing because it's not always talked about. And I think your writing does that also. And I'm, I, I don't mean to draw too many connections, but I'm, I'm wondering if that, mm. did you get some of that influence when you were at, at OMA or, or when you were in practice, were you kind of feeling that and it, has that influenced how you, how you kind of approach your work now?
1: It's funny, actually, yeah, because no, I, I know Renier well. He was one of my bosses when I was at <laughs> OMA. But, but to be honest, it, it's a very strange position to have. I find as a practicing architect to be so cynical about your own work. Because <laughs> in a way, the, the thesis of OMA now yeah, is um, is so cynical. You know, they're, they're almost kind of mm. openly critical of, of their own work. You know, when I went to review. Um, the De Rotterdam project, which is this gargantuan office and apartment building in Rotterdam, which they've been working on for about 15 years. Um, Rem insisted on kind of driving me to the building across the bridge because he was so obsessed with the the kind of formal uh, effect as, as you cross the bridge and, and the view changes. And then we got to the other side and he let me out and he said, oh, you know, to be honest, that's all you need to see. The rest of it is just a cheap speculative office <laughs> building. <laughs> and I, I kind of thought, okay, well, that's going in my article. You know, this is a guy, who's kind of openly, you know, blatant about the expedient way that they work, and it's refreshing in a way. But but I do find their attitude hasn't really helped. You know, if you look at the quality of the buildings coming out of the office over the last say yeah. ten years, they're just not very good anymore. You know, they're <laughs> they're kind of sub Foster. You know, Team D uh, uh, Foster and Partners are producing. Yeah interesting buildings, and I find that cynicism actually not very helpful when you're in a practice. I I think Rainier is a brilliant writer and a a brilliant um, lecturer and and incredibly entertaining, but I almost wish he would kind of step outside the practice and be, (laughs) you know, throwing the missiles in from the outside rather than producing these mindless buildings.
0: Yeah, you know, that's actually, I didn't think about it that I, I don't disagree with how you just framed that and and i was you know obviously i read the book as somebody who's not in the architecture world uh mm-hmm. and so i was reading it as an outsider and i'm really and i'm I'm wondering if that kind of shaped now how i how i read it and even when i talked to him but the thing that i found refreshing about it is that i feel like today it's very easy for Designers in general, this is a blanket statement. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I, I'm including myself in this. I, I probably am guilty of this on this podcast of kind of singing the praises of design as this thing that can solve any problem. Uh, there's a certain kind of colonization of, of designers, kind of going out in the world, solving all these different problems. And as good as I think that is, I also think there's a certain arrogance to that that I'm starting to kind of rub up against in a weird way. Mm. And I felt like his book and the way he kind of talked about it was kind of saying, yeah, there is some of that, but we also have to then keep in mind on the other side. But I kind of, I'm. <laughs> You're you're letting me see in a different way. Um,
1: yeah, I find it very problematic in in his case. I, I find it. I, I think it's a kind of laundering of his conscience. So, you know, he's he's incredibly complicit in the right. kinds of right. forces that he criticizes. You know, it's, it's fine to to rage against, um, you know, speculative apartment buildings and uh, the kind of dangerous forces of overseas capital. But then don't go and work for those clients. Right. You know, right. Yeah, he's very conscious that a lot of the work they're doing, I think, is in that direction. And by writing a book, criticizing it, you know, he's kind of absolving himself of those sins. And it's very clever. You know, the same <laughs> with Rem. You know, he's yeah. very critical of his own buildings, which then actually is a critic kind of takes away our own ammunition because the architect themselves has, has uh, kind of revealed (laughs) the flaws of their own project. So it's a a very clever position to take, but I think actually a much more useful thing to do would be not do that kind of work. And actually, if you're against the kind of neoliberal capitalist model, um, then it's like um, the mass design group, you know, which is a not-for-profit agency, which works, you know, only in the public sector, or a group like Architecture Zero Zero, which which does the mm-hmm. same. You know, they they are very kind of ethical in the kinds of projects they choose. So it's it's a choice as an architect. You know, they're they're not slaves to the system. They can very easily choose the kind of work that they um, would like to take on.
0: You know, this isn't I this is interesting to me. I don't I don't mean to turn this into an OMA takedown podcaster. but um, but something that I've always been interested in. Is and I actually wasn't planning on asking you this, but I find this really interesting. Um, mm. I, I've, I, as I told you, kind of before we started recording, that I went to graduate school, really interested in the critical side of graphic design and and potentially moving into more of a role of a critic. And while I was studying, kind of shifted that a little bit of really kind of wanting to do both. <laughs> Wanting yeah. to be a practitioner and a critic at the same time. And I'm wondering if you think that's possible. Um, mm-hmm. Can can you be both inside the system and... Uh, and criticize the system at the same time, or do those come from two different ways? That there's always going to be that kind of tension there.
1: I think it's very dangerous territory, actually. And and the example I would hold up is Michael Sorkin, mm. who I honestly think is one of you know the 20th century and, and 21st century's best writers. You know, the, the, yeah. the stuff he was doing for the Village Voice in the 80s and 90s was just brilliant. You know, incredibly passionate kind of activist criticism is is you know the model that we all aspire to. Um, And now he has a very corporate architecture practice producing these awful buildings in China, you know, of the kind which maybe 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, he would have railed against with, you know, venom. Mm. Um, and, and now he's kind of doing it himself and I think it is problematic you know, it's the same with architects who, who move into to criticism um, I, I think it's, it's different I think there, there are some architects who are also great writers I mean Sam Jacob who, yeah. who you had on our um, podcast recently is an amazing model of someone who combines uh, you know practice with theory and teaching and again brilliant writing um, but I don't think he would call himself a critic right you know, his, that's his what I was going to say writing. too it's something that kind of feeds into his practice. Um, so, no, I think it is very difficult to do both. You, you end up kind of tying yourself in uh, in ethical and existential knots.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 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 basically, you're saying that you're not going back to practice uh, anytime soon. No, I, I
1: wouldn't describe myself as an architect anymore. I mean, I'm not, you know, some people
0: say, Oh, no, you're still a, a
1: spatial practitioner. Your, your <laughs> writing is a means of practice. And I say, No, I'm not. I'm a journalist. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my medium is words. I'm not an architect.
0: Is that important so, uh, to you to draw that distinction to say that this is not a type of practice that this is journalism?
1: I think it is increasingly, yeah, I do, I get quite frustrated by um, the world of, you know, I I use the phrase spatial practitioner with um, inverted commas, because I think, I don't know, over, over the past, I suppose, decade, also, the the kind of industry of biennales and triennales has produced this model of practice that, that only exists in that realm, right. and it's it's often the same practitioners speaking to the same audiences about the same fairly kind of esoteric, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: hermetic ideas. And I I suppose my role, you know, in a, a, a as a critic writing for a general public audience is to kind of take a sledgehammer. To that world of, of very arcane architectural theorizing, and and you know, spell it out in straightforward language. Um, so right. I yeah, I see myself as a as a journalist, you know, and and try to be as as straightforward and down to earth and um, kind of accessible, I suppose, without dumbing down.
0: I'm I'm curious about your role at the Guardian, where you are writing to a general audience or for a general audience how you see yourself as some sort of uh you know whether it's kind of translator between the industry or the field and and the general audience how do you how do you fit into that relationship Mm. uh and specifically at the guardian which is different than writing for a architecture publication like you were just kind of saying
1: Mm. yeah that's a great question and then to be honest it was a huge leap to make so i spent um two years working for building design magazine which is a, a trade publication mm-hmm. so at the time it was sent to every registered architect in the country and it was a kind of uh, i think each w- week i had like one kind of 2000 word review and it was a very kind of thorough review of of a particular building you know usually mm-hmm. like the latest building that had been completed that week uh generally in the uk but occasionally internationally Um, And I was writing very much for an architectural audience, so it could be kind of technical and I could make references that, you know, that the educated architect would (laughs) understand. Mm -hmm. Um, Moving to The Guardian, you know, which has an audience of 200 million around the world, it's it was a a, a giant leap because basically you don't know who your audience is. (laughs) to realise that that obviously architects are reading your work as well, but like so is your granny, and right. so it's you know anyone in the world, and so you do have to to rethink the way you kind of frame everything, and I think that the biggest challenge is is. Um, the, when you're writing for a national or, or international paper, it's your role to explain to people why architecture matters. Like, mm-hmm. why is this stuff relevant? Why on earth should they be reading about the latest building or the latest urban plan? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you really have to find ways to kind of, yeah, to make it relevant and to explain to people <laughs> why it matters and actually this is stuff that affects everyone and their their daily lives you know so i suppose less time is put into talking about um you know shadow gaps and the way the brick text <laughs> the window reveal and the
0: kind of details i yeah.
1: write a lot about for a technical architecture magazine um and and much more about yeah the bigger forces the kind of political social um and financial forces that that are shaping buildings and and spaces. so, yeah, that's that's what I tend to do much more of at The Guardian.
0: If it's okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of process and and mm-hmm. and uh, kind of how you go about your writing because reading through the archives, I think there's a really nice mix of pieces. And I think, like you just said, there's this kind of constant theme about that's really become the theme of this conversation about kind of these larger external forces and how they influence the built world. Mm -hmm. And you, you move nicely between what I'm going to call kind of more traditional reviews. You, you kind of Mm -hmm. go to a building, you go to an exhibition and you kind of talk about it mixed with pieces that are a little bit more longer form. They're kind of pulling back a little bit to look at larger trends uh two of yours that i read recently was about the influence of instagram on architecture or like the Mm -hmm. the pencil buildings of pencil skyscrapers of new york which is Mm -hmm. not necessarily a specific building or even like the instagram one. you're not talking about a specific place although you have a lot of examples but it's kind of looking at these larger themes are these things i guess i have two questions um and you can kind of pick which one you want to answer answer them however you want um (laughs) are you kind of thinking about these things and you're pitching these? Is there an editor who's saying, hey, can you write about this building? And then are you thinking about, okay, this is a review, this is more of a uh, a long form. How do you kind of approach that process? Well, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> Let me start at the beginning, because it's a fairly complicated... Uh, well, it's not that complicated. It's, it's changed. Okay. So um, I started at The Guardian in 2012. Um, until that point, there'd been an architecture critic, Jonathan Glancy, who'd been there for, I think, about 25 years. And, and he moved on, and they did this kind of very radical thing of actually advertising the job in the newspaper. Oh, wow. Which they'd never really done. You know, the critics are kind of usually middle-aged and upwards... Um, people with you know a lot of connections who are kind of ushered into the job right. and this was an open advert um, so I applied along with everyone else in in London and beyond who writes about architecture <laughs> right. uh, and they you know it was a quite a grueling process there were like two rounds of interviews they got to a short list of about six people I think and we were all asked to do the job for ten days like set up a blog imagine you're doing this job what would you write about and <laughs> um, and i was actually away at the time and so i think as a result when i got back i kind of massively overcompensated and thought shit everyone else has is- had 10 days so i just churned out a huge number of articles or like article ideas um and then when i went for my interview i made a big thing about saying actually you know we should be covering I suppose, you know, the 99%. So, so usually architecture critics write about architecture for the 1%. Right, museums, yeah. the, the galleries, the opera houses, the, the private houses. I was saying, you know, we need to be writing about healthcare architecture, about schools, mm-hmm. about public spaces, about stations, about infrastructure, about, you know, the kinds of things that go under the radar. Um, so they they were kind of sold on that idea. Um, And I got the job, and then when I started, it was this huge anti-climax, because basically they said to me, oh, no, we we kind of want you to be like a one-man version of Dizine, Um, (laughs) you know, several articles a day, you know, we want, it's more about quantity, uh, quality, and you know, I I proposed all of these kind of in-depth, long form uh, politically and socially led features, and they were like, oh no, can't you write about the fact that Kanye West wants to be an architect, or... You know, here's the latest kind of penis-shaped building in Beijing. Can you write a funny blog about that? And so, to be honest, the first 12 months of the job was this constant battle Mm. of of arguing with my editor, saying, actually, no, you know, The Guardian is a kind of serious platform for, for slightly more considered criticism, not just churning out blogs that are going to get clicks. And so, yeah, the, the first year was quite stressful because it was um, basically an article every day um, of, of a kind of shorter, um, I suppose, lighter nature. And it was quite difficult to do those longer features. Um, and then my editor changed, which, you know, I don't want to get too personal about it, but basically my <laughs> life changed completely. I, I finally had someone that, that kind of understood what I was interested in and, yeah. and embraced, you know, just the kind of topics that we've been talking about, as you would imagine the Guardian would. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, so so the system is basically that I propose whatever topics I think are important. Um, that's the difference, I suppose, with the national paper compared to an architecture magazine, that I'm the only person there who has any interest or knowledge in architecture. <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of trust me to to tell them what we should be covering. Um, and yeah, the the length just totally depends. uh, you know, stuff's going in the paper. it obviously has to be shorter because space is more limited, right um, and then you know, occasionally I get the luxury of doing something called a long read, which can be <laughs> yeah. up to about six thousand words. Um, but yeah, it really varies on, on the topic and whether it's online or in the paper or, you know, th- yeah, there's a whole range of things from kind of thousand word quick reviews, which I have to kind of write as soon as I've seen an exhibition to, to much more investigative stories that, that can take, you know, several months of, uh, of kind of working on in the background. Right. I mean, to be honest, those ones I really enjoy doing and, and would much rather do yeah. do many more.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. Es- especially kind of hearing how you kind of pitched what you saw the role as. It sounds like those those longer pieces are really where your your interest is.
1: Yeah. No, that that really is true. I mean the one you mentioned the the New York Pencil Towers piece. I suppose that's in a way my kind of ideal mm-hmm. format, you know, something mm-hmm. which takes a phenomenon and really tries to drill down into all of the different factors that have kind of spawned that phenomenon. You know, so I was really trying to explain to people how kind of air rights work, how FAR works, the kind of intricacies of the New York zoning policy, where the funding is coming from for these kinds of buildings, who's buying them. I <laughs> you know, tried to speak to every kind of party involved in in the process, and then basically just explain what's going on and and not. I suppose it wasn't so much a critique. I wasn't really trying to take sides, but I was just explaining the the situation and allowing people to to make up their own minds, really. so
0: you've you you've now had this job for you know six years, six and a half years. Hmm. has it how has it changed, or how how have has your writing changed, or is the way you kind of approach the job changed over those years? Um,
1: that's a good question. It's, um, I mean, in a way, it's got easier, but uh, partly because like anything, obviously, the, the more you do it, the more naturally it, it, it comes. Um, but it's also a situation when you join such a huge organization, you know, with hundreds of editorial staff, it does, does take to kind of basically establish yourself and kind mm-hmm. of exert your position and, and get a certain level of um, trust, I suppose, you know, to, to the point that editors will will happily let you go off. And and research something properly, and not kind of expect the the daily blog about whatever is popular on Dazine that morning, you know. So yeah, the, the longer I've been there, the more freedom I've had. I would say mm. to to say exactly what I want to write about, and I also the the, the great thing now is the level of feedback and analytics you get. So oh, interesting. Um, in about twenty thirteen, maybe or fourteen, about a year or two after I'd started i proposed a, a very long piece on the planning system which mm. you know, g- given that my editor is an arts editor um I'll, I'll come on to that in a minute actually that's one of my my long-term frustrations that architecture is always in the <laughs> arts, for <laughs> yeah. not not society um you know i it was a difficult sell to be honest a six thousand word essay on problems with the planning system but anyway they, they allowed me to do it uh, and it was one of my most popular articles ever mm. you know hundreds of thousands of people read it in in a really unexpected way and so that at least gave me some kind of ammunition that I could go back to my editor and say look there is appetite for very long detailed essays about problems with the planning system you know please let me do more Um, and so they did and so I've done you know a few of those now Uh, and that's the really great thing about having this this kind of detailed level of analytics that, that I have instant feedback about what kinds of stories are popular, um, and and also this thing called engagement. You know, it's not just about how many people click on these things, but it's about how long they stay, and then also what they click on next. You know, so if right. I can prove that I've built myself a community—that's how they like to refer to—to right. to our readers. You know, if I right. can say, look, I have this loyal community of uh, you know thousands of readers all around the world who are interested in these kinds of topics. You know, this is what I need to be writing about. Um, then that that's a really helpful way of me uh convincing the powers that be
0: you know it, that's actually really encouraging too because so often the narrative around analytics and and clicks is that the audience w- and the readers want the quick stuff they want the mm-hmm. the, the the design stuff that they were trying to get you yeah. to do six years ago, and so to hear that this that these longer pieces are doing that also is actually encouraging. I think it's worth uh, yeah. celebrating for a second.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was really happy and, and quite surprised to be honest. And I, it's interesting, you know, people say, "Oh, the internet it just means people want to read short stuff." You know, that's really not true. And I think the rise of mobile devices. This is the fascinating thing. I, I can see if people are reading my articles on on a mobile device or on a desktop. Mm. And the longer pieces are, are, are much more read on a mobile because I think actually you forget, you know, when you're just on on the tube or yeah. on a bus or, you know, doing whatever and scrolling with your thumb, you don't really realize actually, you know, how many thousands of words you're reading. Yeah. Uh, because you're just—it's a constant scroll. And if you if you saw the length of the articles that you read laid out on, in a newspaper, I'm sure it would look, you know, overwhelming and much more off-putting. Right. But there's something about the mobile format that actually I think encourages people to consume um, longer-form journalism much more easily. Yeah. Uh, than, than they would if it was in print or, or perhaps on a desktop.
0: I want to kind of completely shift gears and talk just... I feel like we should talk a little bit about your, your book on North Korea. Um, mm. I, I I know you've talked about it a lot. It's gotten a lot of press. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I, I think... <laughs> I, 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 I imagine a lot of people are aware of it, but I'm thinking about it actually in the context of this conversation we've been having about the influence of these external forces on the built environment and i'm kind of suddenly realizing that inside north korea is almost like a perfect case study of this thesis that you've been putting forward for the last kind of 10 years in your writing um (laughs) do you see it like that or 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 maybe maybe before we even get into that can you kind of just give a quick overview of what that book is and and how you think about it and then how it kind of maybe relates to this larger conversation mm. we've been having and and the rest of your work
1: sure um so yeah the book came, came about because quite a few years ago now probably 2014 or 13 i pitched an idea to my editor about a uh, a feature on the architecture and urbanism of Pyongyang um, just because I'd, I'd seen photos I think uh, one of the Venice architecture biennales and it just looked like a fascinating <laughs> place obviously uh, and they said okay fine as long as you go as a tourist and we have nothing to do with it I was like okay uh, you know, obviously The Guardian's very sensitive. It was the same when I went to Iran. You know, I couldn't go as a journalist. So I kind of went on holiday to, to yeah. Iran and then wrote about it afterwards. And and it was the same with, with North Korea. I had to join a kind of package tour of holidaymakers um, on this. It was a kind of architectural tour. So it was about 10 days of, oh. of seeing all of these architectural sites in Pyongyang. But I'd made an agreement with the company that took me there. I said, I, I want to write about this. You know, I am a journalist. I'm not, not trying to, like, sneak onto your tour undercover. <laughs> And so amazingly they negotiated with the North Korean partners and they said okay you know as long as you just focus on architecture and urbanism and it's not a kind of human rights exposé mm. uh, then hmm. it's fine. So actually I got a lot more access than I would have done if I'd gone as an official journalist because huh. they really restrict journalists movements you're you're kind of flown in shown you know the one particular site they want you to see and then you're flown straight out again. And I realized that actually going as a tourist, they're, they're less strict. Um, I mean, it's, it's still obviously very stage-managed, yeah. choreographed, but but you do get to see a lot more. Uh, so I did that, and I um, I wrote a long piece for The Guardian, and I think, yeah, I started a blog called North Korean Interiors. Oh, that, right. What, I remember that now. Yeah, so that came out, yeah, two or three years before the book. Um which was my, yeah, photographs of interiors, which I, I don't know if I'm, I can say they went viral, but they were popular online. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely popular. Yeah, they had that kind of surreal, you know, Wes Anderson mm-hmm. quality, something about the color palettes and the symmetry, um, and just this amazing kind of time warp feeling. Uh, and then a, a few architecture photographer friends of mine you know, I've never called myself a photographer. I'm just like an enthusiastic amateur. And they were like, "Oh, yeah, you should do a book." So it was a kind of joke in the pub one day. Um, but you know, like those jokes, it often happens. You kind of accidentally turns into reality. I, I emailed Taschen, uh, and they were very interested. And um, yeah, they, they, you know, before I knew it, they, they work incredibly quickly. A, a few months later, the book was uh, was on the shelves so that's that's how it happened um and it forced me you know it was it was great to have an opportunity to you know, I wrote a much longer you know eight or nine thousand word essay about mm-hmm. the history of of how the North Korean regime has used architecture as a very powerful tool to kind of reinforce the the ideology um you know again, compared to any other city in the world, I suppose it's the the place where you can really feel the connection between architecture and the, the ideology that's created it uh, explicitly. And you know, every move in the urban plan has been done for a reason. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got really into it and got really kind of in <laughs> depth um, and have been doing, yeah, quite a few kind of lectures and exhibitions um, based on the book uh, yeah, in the last year.
0: I mean, that's what, that's what I think is actually the most interesting about it, Especially hearing that, you know, you had to kind of negotiate with the North Korean partners and that if you're going to write about it, you couldn't write about these certain things. Yeah. But you kind of were able to through the lens of architecture. Like, it isn't just – it is about the ideology that this, these buildings and these interiors are kind of making reality. You are kind of oh, – yeah. You're you're still able to. It's not like you're just kind of ignoring all of that.
1: Sure, sure. And it's not censored. You know, they didn't um, ask to see the text or anything like that. So, I mean, they're quite happy to accept criticism. Um, It it was more just that the guides, but basically that... um, if if you go on one of these tours, you know you you get shown what they want to show you. Right. There's no you can't say, oh, can I go and see a labor camp, or you know, can, can right. you take me to the local prison or uh, you know, the lower class housing district around the back? You know, you you see the showcase projects, and that was made very clear. Mm. And I I make that clear in the book. You know, it's not a kind of undercover um, reportage. It's very much you know this is what they want to show the outside world. Right. Um, but I suppose in my essay, I was able to delve into the yeah the mechanics behind vector and the urban planning and, and the meanings the ideology and and yeah be be critical yeah. um but yeah it's, it's focused specifically on on i suppose architecture and and planning um, but the, the really unexpected outcome actually i did an exhibition in um Paju, which is a, a town in south korea very close to mm-hmm. the border yeah north and the the kind of chief city architects of seoul came to see it and he said, "Oh, we should move this to to Seoul. Um, there's a space in the city hall. Oh, wow! Where we could. <laughs> so you know, a few weeks later, this exhibition appeared in in the government building in the capital of South Korea. You know, which is the first time they'd ever um, kind of acknowledged the North um, yeah. publicly and politically in, in that way." And and that's what dawned on me. Actually, the architecture is a, a relatively neutral ground and kind of means of communication and potential collaboration between the two sides. Mm. Um, and so since then, I've been meeting with some Korean curators who are uh, going to be doing the, the Seoul Biennale this coming year. And they're really trying to do a partnership with Pyongyang and, and use architecture as, oh, as wow. a means of cultural exchange in a way, kind of bypassing the political level you know get an, an architect speaking directly to architects so oh, you know so so it's really promising actually the power i don't want to overplay the power of these photos but but it's amazing how they they have proved to be a kind of diplomatic tool in a way
0: yeah that's that's really interesting what are you thinking about now what are the uh, what are the topics or subjects that you find yourself gravitating towards or things you're writing about currently or things that you want to write about in the future
1: well i'm not sure i can really give away <laughs> okay. uh, i I should say check the guardian in a few weeks (laughs) Uh, but no i um well lots of things as one of the things i've been really interested in recently is um the kind of commodification of co-living so mm -hmm. you know house sharing has obviously been a reality for for generations what we're seeing now in london and and new york and well all over the world is, is kind of companies capitalizing on the idea of sharing. And basically monetizing the sharing experience, and so um, WeWork, yep. you know, fastest fastest growing companies in the world, has moved into We Live,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, where they're basically doing the same thing they did for shared workspace, but for housing. Um, there's a group in London called The Collective, where you pay a thousand pounds a month for about ten square meters, uh, oh. so you know, just about room to have a single bed. Yeah. Um, you know, it is kind of hotel living and then there are all these shared amenities where you can hang out and meet like-minded people um but you know they, they've got around the statutory space standards there are very specific policies in london for for how small an apartment can be but because they're classed as a different use they fall into the same use class as hotels they're allowed to bypass those kinds of regulations um and so yeah so I, I shouldn't explain everything that i'm going to be writing um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's looking into you know how how these very powerful companies with a huge amounts of financial backing uh, are kind of commodifying the idea of, of yeah. co-living and that is the future you know they they're buying up huge amounts of property um, in most major global cities and then another thing I'm looking into at the moment, um, I guess along similar lines, is how tech companies are increasingly becoming developers. Mm, mm-hmm. So maybe two years ago, I did a piece on kind of Silicon Valley urbanism, looking at the the main bases right. of, of Facebook, Google, Apple. You know, kind of what the architecture said about those companies.
0: Yeah, uh, I remember that. I since, forgot about that piece.
1: Yeah. Well, since then they've they've really expanded their kind of urban planning ambitions. You know, Google has a, a master plan for several thousand housing units in Mountain View. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook has commissioned OMA to design mm-hmm. a kind of Facebook village. Um, and they're realizing you know, it's because of the really damaging effect they're having on the nearby city. <laughs> right. right. Chasing, you know, f- forcing people out and driving up rents. Uh, they're having to build affordable housing for their workers in order to stop that being a problem. So yeah, that's something that I'm looking into at the moment. What the, the nature of of uh, kind of tech driven urbanism is going to be. in yeah. The future of things like uh, Google's sidewalk labs, you know, using algorithms to kind of generate the idea of reality.
0: Yeah, I love th- uh, both so, of
1: those. Uh, yeah, those are two, two future features coming up. <laughs> yeah, both of
0: both of those are are right down my uh my interest also, so I can't wait for both of those. My last right. question is: I'm curious. You you've mentioned a couple a couple people, a couple writers throughout this conversation, but I'm curious: who are the the critics or the writers or the books that have really shaped how you think about all of this, or how you think about your work, or or what how, kind of how you want your work to be seen? Who are those those people that have yeah. influenced you?
1: Yeah, no, there's a few. I mean, I suppose in the UK, I would say Ian Nairn was always a touchstone. Um, he he was a, a critic and and writer in the kind of, well, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, who wrote, uh, he had a column called Outrage um, in the Architectural Review, where every month he would kind of rage against something. But it, it was that beautiful prose. There's a book called Nairn's London, where he kind of goes around the city basically describing every, building of any historic importance oh, and uh, it's it's just the nature of his language is just beautiful i mean that's one thing we haven't talked about actually the the nature of of language itself but yeah. i do <laughs> yeah. um it's some it is really important for your writing to kind of be engaging and entertaining you know as, yeah. as well as like critical and powerful and 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 radical and all the other things that we've been talking yeah. about yeah you know, yeah as to a kind of beauty to the prose um and and Ian then to me really uh, kind of embodies that you know just some of the kind of metaphors and, and ways he describes buildings you know you would never really think about or, or come up with right uh, so yeah he's a touchstone I suppose in terms of contemporary critics you know my own colleague on the Observer which is the the Guardian on a Sunday uh, Rowan Moore I think he's mm. a brilliant writer and. Um, to be honest, it's quite a kind of intimidating position having him as a as a colleague, uh, because he he he's just great, you know. I, I think he's, he's yeah. the, 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 he writes and the kinds of topics that he tackles. Um, who else? I think in the states, I really miss the writing of Chris Hawthorne, <laughs> who I know you had yeah. on your podcast. You know his, his voice on the LA Times. It was always the first thing if I wanted to know what was going on on the West yeah. Coast, I would turn to him. Um, And it's interesting, actually, his shift is almost the opposite to me starting out in in, in and then becoming a writer. He's gone from being a critic to basically being the design officer for Los Angeles.
0: Right.
1: I haven't spoken to him since then i need to catch up on your interview but (laughs) i would imagine it's been a huge culture shock because from the outside you know you feel oh yeah i'll be able to go in into that political context and make a difference i think it's only when you're there you realize quite how impossible it is to change anything you know without years and years of work yeah um, so I, I really hope he uh, he manages to have an effect from the inside
0: yeah
1: uh, i mean i think owen hatherley is brilliant he, he's one of the most kind of fierce political mm-hmm. voices that we have it's a very different approach to me and i mean we i suppose we're contemporaries we've been writing pretty much the same time i suppose he's a few years older than me and um I suppose his approach whenever he's asked to review a building or a place he'll he'll kind of go there but explicitly not talk to the architects or mm. or not talk to the developer or talk to the people it's very much about his uh, personal reaction to a place and I suppose I have the complete opposite approach which is I go somewhere and I try and speak to as many people as possible <laughs> right. I'll speak to the developer yes. the funder the planning officer the architect the user of the building and then try and uh, I suppose synthesize that into to, to something. Um, but no, I think he's he's brilliant and very kind of consistent in his opinions. Um, so yeah. yeah,
0: I know I said that was the last question, but then you talking about kind of language and and kind of the craft of writing. I didn't mean to limit that question to just architecture critics. And so if you have mm-hmm. even other just writers. <laughs> Uh, that you would say kind of influenced the way you think about writing or or that ha- that you just kind of love their language. Um, you can add some of those too. Yeah, I mean, I
1: suppose one, uh, well, he, he was a critic, but but very different to architecture. I don't know if you know the work of A.A. Gill. No, I've never
0: a, heard that name.
1: Uh, no, okay, well, he was a restaurant critic um, okay. in okay. London for the, I think it was for the Times for a long time. Um, and he died recent way with words um he was famously dyslexic and mm. um i remember reading that actually mm. dyslexia means often that you you come up with the kind of imagery and and metaphors that you know a non-dyslexic person wouldn't you know the, the way the mm. mind works kind of puts together concepts and ideas in a very different way and so his kind of analogies and um similes were were amazing they you know, just just combinations of ideas that that i i would struggle to ever imagine <laughs> yeah. and he also he famously dictated his articles you know because his spelling uh, was so bad he would he would kind of uh read them to a to a secretary and it's um i mean that's something i've never tried doing but i wonder if that that influenced the nature of of the prose as well somehow
0: yeah that's interesting yeah I've never I've never heard of him before I'm gonna have to look that up
1: yeah he's worth looking at very acerbic and okay. uh, and venomous in his his most damning review <laughs> I love that Which actually, I, I maybe I should mention that I, I was talking to a colleague the other day and we were both agreeing how difficult it is to write about good buildings without feeling like you're drifting into the language of a kind of press release mm. uh, or a, a kind of promotional booster yeah. it's much easier and actually more pleasurable to write a kind of damning review <laughs> than, than trying to explain why something is so good you know without falling into the inevitable cliches Right. i, I recently saw a building in switzerland that was just flawless you know in, in every way imaginable it was just perfect and it, it was a real struggle to write the review without just sounding like I was the, the kind of PR person yeah. for the process so it's uh yeah it's a much harder challenge writing about things you love
0: yeah that's I, I actually kind of like ending on that ending on that kind <laughs> of like both positive and kind of is it it's positive pretty, note <laughs> yeah <laughs> um Oliver, thank you so much. This was so fun for me. Like I like I said, I'm a big fan of, of you and your work, uh, you. and this was great to talk to you about all of this.
1: Yeah, no, well, thank you so much for for the conversation. It was uh, it was quite cathartic for me as well. I have to <laughs> good, say,
0: good, good. <laughs> I'm glad. This episode was recorded on February 13th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.